According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7. We got a start on Hebrews chapter 7 last week, and I'm eager to get right back to it, taking a look at Melchizedek. Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. And some of the deepest teachings anywhere in Scripture are right here. Melchizedek doctrine is not easy doctrine. We saw back in uh, chapter 5 that uh, if you are slow of hearing, you can spot it across the uh, page there perhaps on uh, chapter 5 and verse 11. Concerning him we have much to say. It is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So we're going to take a moment this morning for silent prayer to make sure that none of us are dull of hearing, to sharpen our hearing, to be in fellowship, to be humble under the Word of God, that He would teach us what we need to learn related to our Melchizedek priesthood in Christ. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for your grace provision. I thank you, Father, that we're saved by grace, and that being saved by grace, we have ears to hear. I thank you, Father, for our position in Christ, that in the church age includes the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. I thank you for the the grace apparatus for perception. Father, that every believer priest here today can learn from your word, even, even the deep things, even the deep things of God. And so I pray this morning that no one sitting here would be slow of hearing, that, Father, we would be eager, eager to be led in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So, Father, set aside distractions, keep our eyes fixed firmly on Jesus, teach us this powerful truth. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name I do pray, amen. So as we deal with uh, Melchizedek doctrine, we realize this is now the third mention The third time that the order of Melchizedek has been mentioned, chapter 5 and verse 6, verse 10, uh, 620, as he uh, mentions these things, it's just too much. And uh, he overcomes his reluctance now to provide this Melchizedek discourse. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 1 and following just comes right there on the heels of 620, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And so right here, before we go any further, it's it's obvious, this is powerful. This is for us, that Jesus has entered within the veil. We have this hope, this anchor, this sure and steadfast stability that we dealt with a couple weeks ago in in, uh, 619. You remember this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. If you find that your Christian life is lacking stability, this is the verse for you. This is a verse that just pounds the stability over and over and over again, that it is a sure and steadfast hope. It is an anchor, one that enters within the veil. So if you find that your Christian walk now is lacking that stability, ask yourself, how much time have I spent within the veil? How much time have I spent before the Father's throne of grace? How much time have I spent in the priestly function of prayer? with my brothers and sisters in the local assembly, because this is a corporate application in the body of Christ. So within the veil where Jesus has entered, not the Old Testament veil, not the, you know, when he died on the cross, that veil was rent in two, and he never went in there. There was no reason to go in there. 
That veil was rent in two to show how empty it was, to show how indeed when he said it is finished, that means it is finished. And so he went into the Holy of Holies in the heavenly places. He ascended to the Father's right hand. He cleansed the heavenly temple on our behalf. And we're going to see that too by the time we get into chapters 8 and 9. We get a little tour of the heavenly temple, so that'll be fun. We'll take some field trips to heaven while we're sitting here uh, on uh, Cross Park Drive in Austin, Texas. But that's where our stability is, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, all right? Forerunner, that's a clue. That means it's not there by himself. That means we follow him, that where he went, we go. He is in the Holy of Holies. We should be in the Holy of Holies. We should be entering into his rest, and we should be entering into the holy place, and that's the confidence that we have. A forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, not a Levitical high priest, a Melchizedek high priest. All right, now, this might be oversimplistic, but, but allow me to be oversimplistic because I have had discussions with some pretty crazy people, or no, people aren't crazy, but they're holding crazy views that uh, try to put forth a, a premise that we are not priests in the church age. And to disprove that we are priests in the church age, they have to reread Hebrews extensively. Uh, to make it not say what it plainly says, all right? But to me, it's pretty plain that if Jesus is a forerunner for us, all right, can, can I raise my hand now and say I'm included? This is us, and he is a forerunner for us, and he is a high priest for us, right? He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Can I raise my hand there too and say, this is us, this is us, And if he is a high priest and I am a priest, I mean, why is this complicated? This ought to just follow naturally. He has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're going to learn that the reason why we are not Levitical priests is because we're not Levitical, but the reason why we're Melchizedek high priests is because we have the same qualifications he has. He gives us those qualifications, the power of an indestructible life. Our eternal life in Christ as church-age believer priests inducts us into this priesthood, okay? And we want to be very clear on that as we proceed forward through chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. This is, the, this is the essence of our priesthood. This is our Leviticus, by the way, and it's a living sacrifice. It's no blood, no dead animals, because the blood of Christ did away with all of that. And this is a, it's a thrill for each one of us now to operate on this basis. So he uh, became a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And now he just can't help himself. Now the Holy Spirit takes this author, Luke or Barnabas or whoever, and just drives him into a full chapter here on a Melchizedek discourse. The Genesis record is recounted and significant details are highlighted. As we see here in verses 1 through 3, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, that is, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of the spoils. Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. The order is vital because the lesser is is being blessed by the greater and the lesser is tithing to the greater. That That Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Okay? Keep that in mind, because that's unthinkable in a Jewish mindset. The, the Pharisees and all the critics that were attacking Christ, they were like, oh, you're not greater than our father Abraham, are you? 
And when Jesus said, before Abraham was born, I am, okay? In the Jewish mindset, Abraham's the pinnacle. Abraham's the, four, he's the, he's the patriarch, all right? Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, okay? And that's significant. So to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of the spoils was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, Hermeneutically speaking, hermeneutics is the doctrine of interpretation. We've got a participle here of hermeneuo. Uh, so to interpret his name, uh, he is the king of righteousness. So if your name is king of righteousness and God writes you up in the Bible as a doctrinal example, who do you think he's pointing to? I think he's pointing to the king of righteousness. <laughs> okay, I think that's not an accident. There's a reason why we exegete. There's a reason why we have the hermeneutic that we have. Melech is king and Sadiq is righteousness. You combine Melech with Sadiq, what do you get? Melech Sadiq, you get Melchizedek. All right, king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem. Now Salem is just a shortened form of Jerusalem. It's the same as Jerusalem. It's Jerusalem before it became Jerusalem, before David conquered it, before it was even Jebusite. I don't think Melchizedek was a Jebusite. Maybe he was. We don't know his genealogy. But before, Ab- uh, before David conquered the Jebusite uh, fortress and made it the city of David, uh, this is an older form of Jerusalem called Salem. Shortened form is an older form. And uh, so not only is he king of righteousness, he's also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Salem like Shalom like uh, even the Arabs today with their as-salam alaikum stuff. It's all about peace, okay? So, salom, peace. So he's a king of righteousness, king of peace. Gee, who do you think this is a picture of? There's a lot of doctrine here. And it all points to Jesus. And it all points to Jesus before Abraham. They're taking communion together. All right. Then today we're going to get into some of the tougher things here without father, without mother, without genealogy. Well, who doesn't have a father or a mother, right? Well, we've got to discuss this because we've got to understand is this being phrased literally like he never had a father, he never had a mother? Is that literally true of the literal Melchizedek? Or is this true figuratively, metaphorically? Is this true in another sense as it is written? And we'll discuss that coming up here as well. So this is the Genesis record and it's highlighted. It's recounted. Significant details are highlighted. Abraham was returning from the slaughter of the kings. And I'm not going to take the time. We did this last week. We went back to Genesis 14 and we saw this. We saw Keter Leomer and all those guys, right? Four kings that were invading from the east. And then we saw the king of Sodom and five kings there. Remember there were five cities, not just Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah plus three other wicked places, okay? Those five cities, and they were all banded together. And so four kings against five kings, the battle of nine kings, if you will, okay? And, uh, and all of this sets the table for what Abraham's about to do. Abraham has to go out and rescue Lot, okay? And we went through that last week, and I would encourage you, if you missed it, review the MP3 file, read the chapter, and see these things. He was returning from the slaughter of the kings. Melchizedek blessed Abraham and he blessed El Elyon. Now of all the names for God, from El Shaddai to Yahweh to all the other names for God, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, there's, there's hundreds of names for God. But El Elyon is the most high. It is God of gods. It is the most high God. 
And when you have the Most High God, or when you have El Elyon, you've got a, a concept that spans the Pentateuch, it, stand, it spans the Psalms, taking you into Isaiah and Daniel, into the prophets. It is a term that is most frequently used in a Gentile context. From Balaam to Nebuchadnezzar to Gentiles, even angels in uh, Psalm 82 and Psalm 83. We had a view of the heavenly council there, and they were subject, they were gods. They were, they were Elim, but he is the God of gods. He is El Elyon and, uh, and principles there. So there's a blessing. And in all the blessings that we see, when, um, remember when Isaac blessed Jacob, he thought he was blessing Esau, but Jacob was there in disguise. He was blessing Jacob. And then Esau comes in and realizes he missed it. <laughs> oh, bless me too. Do you only have one blessing? There's a significance when the father blesses the son or when Jacob crosses his hands to, to swap out Manasseh and Ephraim so that the younger would, be, would serve or would be exalted above the older. Okay. Anyway, the principles of blessing as we find them throughout Scripture. It's always the older, the greater that's blessing the lesser. And then the lesser is able to serve or pay or tithe or honor, all right? So Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Abraham uh, honored Melchizedek through the tithe, gave him the tithe. And that order becomes significant. Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. And those are the details as we saw them last week. Now I want to advance to, uh, to see some other things here this morning, specifically as it relates to this uh, typification, as it were. The, the fact that Melchizedek is a type of Christ. And in, in, in a way that, that grabs our attention based on its obscurity, based on the fact that after Genesis 14, we never see Melchizedek again anywhere else in the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, anywhere else in Genesis, anywhere else in the law. When Moses come, brings, them out of Israel, brings them out of Egypt and they enter into the land, Melchizedek isn't mentioned when Joshua leads them in to conquer the land, Melchizedek isn't mentioned, or his descendants or the people there uh, in, in Jerusalem. It's just like he appeared for one chapter and then disappeared out of the blue. Into the blue. He appeared out of the blue. Disappeared back into the blue. I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah, the, I'll stick with the text. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, in other words, just out of nowhere, boom, here he is. And then he goes away. And there's doctrine in that that grabs our attention. And it's not mentioned again until David writes Psalm 110. And then David writes Psalm 110, and what do we have? Melchizedek. Well, where'd that come from? Join me there now. Let's pick up, uh, hold your finger in Hebrews 7. We'll be back here shortly, but let's look at Psalm 110. We've been here several times already in the first six chapters of Hebrews. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord. The Lord says to my Lord. We've got an interaction between God the Father and God the Son here. And David is writing. David calls Jesus his Lord. He calls, this is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. The Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool 
for your feet. And this has been quoted again and again and again, repeatedly, for the first uh, few chapters here already. We've seen it in, uh, in the book of Hebrews. And this is the passage Jesus used in answering his critics when all of the, the Pharisees were criticizing and coming to him and, and he's calling himself the Son of God and they had all these objections. And he says, well, then why does David call him his Lord? If he's the son of David, why does David call his son Lord? And that they had no answer for it. They could not answer it because a patriarch should be greater than the descendant. The patriarch should be blessing the descendant. The descendant should be honoring the patriarch. That's the normal order. But here is a son, a descendant, who is greater. Here is a son that David calls my Adonai, my Lord. And one that is the promised Messiah to reign forever. So Yahweh says to my Adonai, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so we have a victory prize that's assigned, the privilege of sitting at the Father's right hand. The privilege of, although he was rejected as a king, the Father says, just take a seat. You're going to have your kingdom here. The Father's going to work to provide the Son that kingdom. Sit at my right hand until... I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. So again, this is Yahweh, the Lord, God the Father, will stretch forth your, Jesus, Messiah, Adonai, your strong scepter from Zion. When you're done sitting on my right hand, you're going to go forth and you're going to reign from Zion, the city of David, Jerusalem, saying rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. Your people rejected you in the day of your humility, but your people will serve you voluntarily, freely, in the day of your power. When he comes back at second advent, they are prepared for him. They will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They have to go through tribulation to get there. (laughs) The Jewish nation has to go through hell on earth to be prepared to volunteer freely in the day of his power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Now, if we ended Psalm 110 there, it'd be powerful enough as it is. Three verses with a king, three verses with a a power to reign, three, uh, three verses that speak of a future second advent, even though he was rejected at first advent. And we would love Psalm 110, but it doesn't stop there. It goes on to verse four. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And all of a sudden, this very obscure Melchizedek, who was introduced in Genesis 14, who disappeared in Genesis 14, who we never saw again anywhere else in the Old Testament, he gets promised here in Psalm 110 that this king is going to come, he's going to reign in the millennium, He's going to be a king. He's going to be a king priest. That's, that's extraordinary. That's unique. That's unparalleled anywhere else. How can a king be a priest? There's no, there's no peace between the kingly office and the priestly office. The king is from Judah. The priest is from Levi. Ah, oh, wait a minute. According to the order of Melchizedek. All right. You can be a king priest if it's not a Levitical priest. Okay. So you don't want to be a Levitical king, which is what the Maccabees were. 
You don't want to be a Levitical king. That was in between the two testaments. That was, that was problems. All right. And you don't want to be a Judah priest. A Judah priest doesn't work, right? Judas, Judas priest. Judah priest, that doesn't work. Careful. All right. But a Melchizedek priest? Ah, wait a minute. This is something else. Tell me more. Oh, no, verse 5 doesn't go there. Uh, verse 5, it's back to uh, the Lord is at your right hand. That's the Father. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. You thought Abraham was something when he went out and whooped four kings? Wait a minute. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. All right. Well, tell me more about this Melchizedek. thing. is nowhere else. Nowhere else. Genesis 14, one verse in Psalm 110, and then nothing until the book of Hebrews. Nothing until the book of Hebrews. It's an amazing uh, pattern that God gives us here. All right. So, the Genesis narrative of Melchizedek is crafted precisely to typify Jesus Christ and his millennial glory. We're going to do an exegetical study, which means we're also going to do a literary study here this morning. That's what the author of Hebrews is doing for us. The, high, the author of Hebrews is doing our work for us. He's walking us through an exegetical study. He gives the hermeneutics and he gives the typology. We do the same thing when we rightly divide the word of truth. We take a passage and we want to look at the details. We want to see what does it say? What does it not say? What does it say and what does it mean? And why does it say it that way? Okay, These are all the things that we do when we rightly divide the word of truth. This is what we do in categorical doctrinal Bible churches. This is why we, we, we have law versus grace, Old Testament versus New Testament, Israel versus the church. That's why nobody brought a goat with them this morning. Thank you for that. You left your goats at home. Okay? Nobody brought a goat. We're not killing any animals. We're not spilling any blood because we are not Levitical priests. We are Melchizedek priests. We function in the reality, not the shadows. See, shadows give way to truth. Shadows are just painting a picture. Shadows have a fulfillment. Shadows have a substance. You and I operate in the substance, which means by faith we operate in Christ within the veil. All right? Getting ahead of myself. (laughs) So the Genesis narrative of Melchizedek is crafted precisely to typify Jesus Christ in his millennial glory. As we walk through what, what the author does here in Hebrews 7, we see that he's doing the exact same thing that we do in our uh, form of teaching to which we are committed, in our style, our, our philosophy of ministry. That means we exegete text. That means that we, we interpret according to context. That means we apply the historical grammatical interpretation of Scripture. And that's what the author is doing here. All right, so now when Moses wrote this down, Why did he write it this way? Why did he write these chapters this way? Why why did he write chapter 14 this way? Did I say we weren't going to turn to chapter 14 this morning? Okay, I won't turn to chapter 14 this morning. Just read it yourself this afternoon, all right? And ask yourself, why did he write it that way? Because this is the same Moses that wrote chapter 5 and chapter 10. This is the same Moses who has no problem writing genealogies. (laughs) He can write genealogies for chapters, 
in chapter 5 and chapter 10. He even repeats it in chapter 11 to make sure we're solid on the Abraham lineage. And yet there's no lineage in chapter 14. There's no background for Melchizedek. There's not a clue who Melchizedek even is. It's just all of a sudden he's there. Why was he not attacked by Keterleomer and his buddies? Why was he not siding with king of Sodom and his buddies? Why is he this 10th king that's totally separate from all these other kings? And how does he just appear out of nowhere and then disappear back into nowhere again? It's written that way. It is a literary device that crafts the character that way. And so we'll discuss that. Ooh, I even had a website I was going to show you this morning and I failed to load it. So hopefully we have internet and I'll pull up a website. All right. So this is how it's crafted. This is how it's written. Remember, Abraham's about 2000 BC. Moses, when he writes this down, is about 1400 BC, right? 1440 in the Exodus and the 40 years of wandering uh, and then the entrance into the land. So we're talking a 600 year gap, maybe even an 800 year gap between the time of Melchizedek and the time that Moses writes it down. So Moses writes it down, and when he writes it down in Genesis 14, he does so in a way that gives us more questions than answers. This is a part of questions in Genesis, not answers in Genesis. This is a part of questions in Genesis, whereby you go to Psalm 110, you go to Hebrews, and you start finding your answers about this Melchizedek glorious character. He's a great character, a great character. He is, first of all, he is both king and priest, in Hebrews 7.1, he is both king and priest. This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Now this is described in a positive way. All of this is positive. Nothing negative is ever stated about Melchizedek. No sin ever recorded about Melchizedek. That's, there's a reason for that. Because he's a type of Christ. And it's not just me, by the way. When you take a look at Hebrews 7, 4, observe how great this man was. Do you see that? You're supposed to. You're commanded to observe it. Observe how great this man was. Observe his greatness. All the people in history that have the great attached to their name, Melchizedek, there he is, the great. So he is both king and priest. Now that sets him apart. Obviously he's not Jewish, uh, he's, he's older than Abraham. Obviously, he has nothing to do with Israel as a nation. And, and curiously enough, when Israel was set up as a theocracy, God specifically divided them up. God made Levi the, the priestly tribe and made Judah the kingly tribe. He specifically divided them up for that reason. Now, there were pagans around them, and pagans would combine those. Pharaoh, for example, was a god king. Uh, the Babylonians had god kings. You had kings that were high priests of their own state cult, their own state religion. All right, Julius Caesar was the Pontifex Maximus in his day and age. You think that's an accident? <laughs> so there's a lot of pagans that would combine religion with politics. They would combine uh, the, the king and the priest together. And they would have those things together. God decided to separate those for the Old Testament. He separated those for his covenant nation in the Old Testament. But coming in the millennium, what's he going to do? He's going to put these back together again in Jesus, that Jesus will be the king priest that Melchizedek was in Genesis 14. 
So he's going to put those together again. By the way, where are you and I the whole time? We're king priests as well because we're the bride of Christ. We're with him. We're reigning with him and we're serving in our Melchizedek priesthood right there with him. All right. This, by the way, was a strange prophecy that Zechariah gave in Zechariah 6.13. We've seen a couple of times already in our Hebrews series, but Zechariah 6.13, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. If you can't find Zechariah, it's your penultimate book of the Old Testament, second to last. Zechariah 6.13. Nobody pays attention to the minor prophets. Hosea through Malachi, 12 minor prophets, and who can keep track of all this stuff? Well, Jesus said, everything written concerning me must be fulfilled. And so that includes a prophecy of peace between the kingly office and the priestly office. And so he's told here to to take a crown, and um, in verse 11, take silver and gold, make an ornate crown, set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, why do you think his name is Joshua? Because that's the Hebrew form of Jesus, okay? And this is, again, he's a type just like Melchizedek is a type. So the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Remember, when they came back from captivity, Joshua was the high priest and Zerubbabel was the uh, political leader from the tribe of Judah. But he doesn't say put the crown on Zerubbabel's head. He says put the crown on Joshua's head. Put the crown on Jesus' head while I give you a prophecy and give you some typology. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. See, this is a prophecy of Jesus. Jesus is branch. He starts off as tender shoot, but then he grows into branch. Gets these names assigned to him. And it is he, he's going to build the the new temple. He's going to sit on the throne. He will be priest. So he will bear the honor, sit and rule on his throne. He will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between the two offices. And there you have it. God's going to do that in the millennium. He's going to take Messiah the king and assign him as a priest. But it won't be a Levitical priest. Psalm 110 already gave it away. He is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He'll be a king priest like Melchizedek was in Genesis 14. Now, a king of righteousness and king of peace. Melchizedek typifies what David and Solomon must be combined to typify in Jesus Christ. How great was Melchizedek? Melchizedek could do what it took David and Solomon combined to do in their narratives of, uh, of their typology. David was a type of Christ, the conqueror, the king of righteousness, the one that had victory over his, his enemies. That's the type of Christ. Solomon is a type of Christ as the king of peace. Solomon inherited David's peace. So because David conquered, Solomon can reign in peace. You see, both of them combined to paint the picture of Jesus Christ. David was not allowed to build the temple. Solomon's allowed to build the temple. When Jesus comes, what's the first thing he's going to do? Build a temple, okay? The conquering king priest is going to build the millennial temple that Ezekiel writes about in Ezekiel 40 through 48. 
So as king of righteousness and king of peace, Melchizedek typifies what David and Solomon must be combined to typify in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to give a whole study on typology. You know, what, you know what I mean when I say typify? We talk about typology. Let me explain that real quickly if you're not familiar with that. There is a type and there is an anti-type. That's, the Bible is full of them, just full of all kinds of types, typology, right? And a type points forward to an anti-type. It's like a, a prophecy, but instead of being verbal, it's, it's personified. It's, 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 it's a prophecy that's, that's found in the life of a person or a, an event or a thing. That's a type. And most of the typology in the Old Testament is Christological. It's a type of Christ. But there are also types of Antichrist. There are types of, uh, in Judas Iscariot, was a type of Antichrist. And so there's other types as well besides just types of Christ. That's what we mean by typology. If you want more on this, I think probably Fairbairn has the the most comprehensive book ever written on typology, Patrick Fairbairn. Um, But typology is a marvelous study because it's biblical and it's not off the rails like allegory. All right? Allegory is where you just kind of, you read a verse and say, all right, here's what I think it means, and you invent something creative. Okay, and you just allegorize it to make it say what you want it to say, and and that's there's no there's no rules for that. That's just all you know the product of your imagination and what you know you can sell books with it and people will eat it up. But typology is something different, and the Bible itself explains what those typology fulfillments are. Quite clearly, Melchizedek is a type of Christ, and Hebrews makes that clear. Okay. Maybe the most obvious one is Abraham sacrificing Isaac. That's a type. And Hebrews tells us that when he received Isaac back, he received him back as a type. So you have a father willing to sacrifice his son. Does that paint a picture for you? God the Father was willing to sacrifice his son so that you and I could have eternal life. That's what typology is. All right? And there's tons of other typology. Joseph, his brothers hated him. His brothers hated him, tried to kill him, sold him off into slavery, rejected by his brothers, beloved by his father. Remind you of anybody? Jesus was rejected by his brothers, beloved of his father. And then Joseph gets shipped off and he's uh, actually, Joseph's given a a Gentile bride. How about that? He marries the the daughter of the, the Egyptian priest down there. How about that? Jesus, what kind of bride does Jesus get? The bride of Christ, neither Jew nor Gentile. Yeah, what a beautiful thing we have in the church age. So Joseph, with his coat of many colors, Joseph is a remarkable type of Christ. And then he ends up saving everybody. <laughs> right? Because of the famine and he's the only guy with food. You want bread of heaven? Joseph's right there to give it to you. He is a type of Christ, rejected by his brothers and saving everybody. That's us. That's Jesus. Okay? So typology is powerful. So we have Melchizedek here. He is a type. And we're going to see David as a type. We're going to see Solomon as a type. So when you look at 2 Samuel 23.3, we get David now. And the best thing that can be said about David, of course, he was a man after God's own heart. He was a man of faith. But when he reigned as a king, his reign was a reign of righteousness. 2 Samuel 23. David was a type of Christ. Among all the types of Christ, probably the greatest was David. I don't know. It's hard to rate 
whether David was greater than Melchizedek on this or not. Um, these are the last words of David. Second Samuel chapter 23. David, the son of Jesse, declares, the man who was raised on high declares. He knew that he didn't deserve it. God just lifted him up. The anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Here's what he has to say. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God. So here's the king of righteousness typified in David. He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises, a morning without clouds, when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after rain. Truly is not my house so with God, for he has made an everlasting covenant with me. When does that expire? If it's an everlasting covenant, let me tell you. Okay, so does the church replace Israel? Not according to that verse. It's an everlasting covenant. Israel has a future, and that future for Israel is the throne of David. You cannot separate the throne of David from Israel's future. And it's not the church fulfilling that. It's Jesus fulfilling that. He has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secured. For all my salvation and all my desire, will he not indeed make it grow? All right but the worthless, every one of them will be thrust away like thorns because they cannot be taken in hand. It's going to, the Armageddon is going to do away with all the rebellion, all, every unbeliever. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear. They will be completely burned with fire in their place. See, only, uh, only believers enter the millennial kingdom. Jesus conquers at Armageddon and all the armies of Antichrist and every unbeliever in the world. He gathers them like the sheep and the goats, separates them left and right, and every goat goes to hell. Every unbeliever goes to hell at Armageddon. Only believers enter the millennial kingdom. So here's David celebrating righteousness, and he is indeed the king of righteousness. He is the type of Christ there as the king of righteousness. Every king that follows David in the, in the line of Judah gets compared to David whether or not they were a righteous king or not. If they did right, it was because they were righteous and they, they were uh, following after the example of David. If they were not righteous, then that meant they were following the northern kings of Israel and the, the sins of, of Jeroboam and so forth. David becomes the standard of righteousness until when? Until Jesus comes as the standard of righteousness. And Jesus is the pinnacle. Solomon, likewise king of peace, his name means peace. Uh, Solomon in 1 Chronicles 22.9. Let's look at Solomon now. 1 Chronicles 22. And it's interesting, unlike First and Second Kings, which tend to be more politically focused, First and Second Chronicles are more priestly focused, centered on the, uh, the priestly ministry and the spiritual life of Israel before the Lord. And so David said, this is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offerings for Israel. David didn't get to build it. 
He just funded it. He put the building materials together. He contracted with his his buddy Hiram, king of Tyre, and everything was prepared for Solomon and uh, got all the preparations made. And then Solomon comes along. Verse 6, he called for his son Solomon and charged him to build a house for the Lord God of Israel. And David said to Solomon, my son, I had intended to build a house to the name of the Lord my God. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name because you you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. Behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from his enemies on every side. His name shall be Solomon and I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. He and see the peace that's there. Solomon is the king of peace in verse nine. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son. I will be his father. I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. So you see, you've got to combine. You've got to combine David and you've got to combine Solomon together if you want to have the total picture of what Jesus fulfills. Not so with Melchizedek. With Melchizedek, you get both the king of righteousness and the king of peace. You get a king priest in Melchizedek. You didn't get any kind of priest with with David or with Solomon. They were kings, not priests. So the the greatness of Melchizedek is spelled out here in such a way that he could typify, single-handedly typify, what it took David and Solomon combined to typify, if that makes sense. That's what I'm trying to say here. How great is this man, Melchizedek? It's almost like, uh, you know, some things just defy. The, The scapegoat defies you, you, you need two goats for that scapegoat thing. You can't have one goat that dies and one goat that lives that carries away the sin into the wilderness. Because you've you got to have two goats to, pick, to paint both pictures. But Jesus fulfills it all. Jesus died on the cross and then Jesus carried our sins away, never to be seen again. Now, if you can typify that with a single goat, I'm impressed because that's, you know... What it means is you've got to kill that goat and that goat's got to be resurrected again. And so, since we can't resurrect goats, the, the, the Levitical typology of, this, of the scapegoat sacrifice required two goats, a dying goat and a living goat. Okay? Jesus fulfills them both. It takes David and Solomon combined to show the righteousness and to show the peace, to show the, the, the conquering and then the reigning in peace. And yet, Jesus fulfills both. Melchizedek typifies both. And so you'll see the typology of Jesus Christ primarily through Psalm 45, Psalm 72, Isaiah 9, Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23, all right. So let's look at these, Psalm 45. We've got some great things coming up and we're not there yet. People that are trying to convince me that we're in the kingdom already, that uh, they're trying to fulfill this already, not yet, lunacy. Um, all these preterist views that think that all the wrath of Revelation was over and done with when Titus destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, that, you know, all this insanity. No, we are futurists. We know this hasn't happened yet. We know this is yet to come. We can prove that it's yet to come because it hadn't happened yet, not in the plain literal way that, that it promises to happen. You have to get so allegorical and explain away all these other things. Um, 
Like, you know, as I look back over 2,000 years of church history, I've yet to see Jesus Christ seated on the throne of David in Jerusalem. It's just not there. When the modern state of Israel was resurrected, yes, that was a miracle. Yes, there were Jews back in the land, but the Knesset is not the throne of David. All right. And as awesome as Bibi Netanyahu is, I'd love for him to become a born-again believer by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. All right. Psalm 45. And um, <laughs> this is great. Uh, for the choir, this is a song celebrating the king's marriage. You might even think of this. Are you planning a wedding? Got some wedding music lined up? Um, according to Shoshanim, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a song of love. It's a love song. And uh, it's got swords, <laughs> sharp arrows. This is, this is my kind of love song. This is, this is good stuff. <laughs> My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of man. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and in your majesty. In your majesty, ride on victoriously. See, this is not humble riding on a colt. This is not born in a manger. This is not the first advent humility. This is the second advent glory. In your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So now it's interesting because he is called God and yet he has a God. Your throne, O God, this is the king that's reigning. But it's your God that um, is doing these things on his behalf. Same thing with Psalm 110. Go forth when I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. All right. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. For you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Are we going to vote this into the ballot box? Is this going to come about politically? Can we find a candidate or a Supreme Court justice or something? Can we find human answers that are going to fulfill this psalm? Not at all. This requires Jesus Christ to come and conquer at Armageddon. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. We had so many hymns that come from this and applications here. Okay, And then we think about he left the ivory palaces to come in first advent and be born of a manger and so forth. While that is true, this chapter is talking about leaving the ivory palaces to come and conquer and sit on the throne and reign for the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but then there's a queen. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Now, who is she? Where did she come from? You know, it's almost like another Melchizedek introduction, just out of nowhere, boom, here's a queen, wow. Where'd she come from? What's her story? Without father, without mother, without birth, without death, without all these other things. It's just a literary 
boom, surprise character dropping in out of nowhere. It's the bride of Christ. It's a mystery in the Old Testament. We, don't, we can't know. No Old Testament saint could have any clue who the queen of Yahweh was going to be. And it goes on from there. But you'll notice his reign is a reign of righteousness. How could it not be? Psalm 72. You, you wanted to see more of the queen, didn't you? I'm sorry. Yeah, she's beautiful. She's glorious. Um, which means you and I have to go through testing. It means you and I have to be given the clean garments. That means we have to be a bride suitable. He just doesn't grab any old woman to make the bride of, of Christ. Anyway, read through that in Psalm 45 and you're going to notice the uh, preparation for that bride. All right, um, Psalm 72. All right. And wouldn't you know it? The reign of a righteous king, a Psalm of Solomon. Here's one of the ones that Solomon wrote, recorded for us here in the book of Psalms. And uh, verses 1 through 4, give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. And you have this tandem of David and Solomon together. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. So there's both righteousness and peace in this psalm. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. It comes about eschatologically, it comes about in prophecy, it comes about through victory. It's not going to come about without the the crushing of the oppressor, the rescuing of the afflicted. It takes second advent to humble Israel. It really does. It takes that great tribulation, unlike anything they've ever been through before. And then Jesus Christ can come. It's not going to be David, not going to be Solomon. It's going to be Jesus himself who comes, who reigns in both righteousness and in peace. This is of the doctrine that we can glean out of just the Melchizedek references <laughs> that, uh, that we get here in Hebrews. How about, um, is there anything else there in Psalm 72? It comes down. Yeah, there's a lot of other things here in Psalm 72, but this is, uh, I think we can let this go for this morning as far as this goes. The, the victory that comes, it, it, if you say it came in the first century, you've got to allegorize this whole chapter. You've got to allegorize all of this because Jesus did not come and reign. In fact, the Romans won in the, in, the, in the conflict there. They destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. The Jews were scattered. They, were, they did not have another a national entity until 1947. 1948. 1948, okay. I get that wrong all the time. 1948, 50 years ago, 70 years ago this year, Okay. And so the whole idea that Revelation was fulfilled in 70 A.D. is just asinine. It's backwards. It's ludicrous. All right. Isaiah chapter 9. I'm not in trouble, am I? Am I allowed to say asinine on a Sunday morning in church? It's an adjective. All right. 
Some adjectives are better on Wednesday nights. <laughs> Isaiah 9. Here's our Savior. And, um, and of course, in chapter 7, we had the promise of a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. But here we see uh, him reigning. There will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. Yeah, try to find all the great stories in the Old Testament from Zebulun and Naphtali. They're just not there. By the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, there's an obscure backwater part of Israel that's going to get famous someday. Of course, we know when Jesus walked there. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now, did this happen in First Advent? When Jesus came, I mean, just think your way through John chapter 1. There came the light. And then hated the light. Their deeds were evil. They rejected the light. They preferred to walk in the darkness. They saw a great light. They didn't want it. They crucified him. They said, we have no king but Caesar. (laughs) Sad. What they could have had. What they're going to have. They just have a uh, 2,000 plus year delay between first and second advent to have these prophecies fulfilled. See, this is going to happen. You know, God wasn't thwarted because they rejected him in his first advent. These verses are still pending fulfillment. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of the harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. The one who endures to the end will be saved. When they survive the millennium, the tribulation, they get the millennium. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff from their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor is at the battle of Midian. That's a complete and total victory. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Destroying the Antichrist weaponry takes months, years. And yet it's theirs. They get the plunder. For a child will be born to us a son will be given to us. Two different things. Humanity and deity, hypostatic union. We have a physical birth, but we also have the giving of a son. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Did that happen in first advent? No. Nope. He never took it. He never claimed it. He was entitled to it, but he never claimed it. He was waiting for his father. He can't take the kingdom. He has to sit at the Father's right hand until the Father makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. The government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called. And look at these names. Jesus is not in here anywhere. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. And I don't know why the Pharisees had such a problem where he made himself out to be God. Right here it says, He is God. Eternal Father, the fatherhood of Jesus Christ in the fullness of time after the millennium. Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. Okay? That's millennium and its fulfillment. Second evidence fulfillment. 
new heavens and new earth in its fulfillment. He did not fulfill these things in uh, First Advent. Even though the shepherds were out there singing, you know, peace on earth, goodwill to men, and all the glory to God in the highest, and all the Christmas songs. Yeah, he came to save, and they rejected him as their king. They rejected him as their king. There will be no end to the increase of his government or on peace. Ronald Reagan made a joke on that verse once about the, the scripture we see fulfilled always where there's never any end to the increase of government. But connected to the increase of his government and of peace, I'm okay with that. Jesus can increase his government all he wants forever. And how is he going to do this? On the throne of David and over his kingdom. If, if you pretend or if you try to tell me that the throne of David has been superseded, that the throne of David is done, if you try to tell me that the church replaces Israel, that all of Israel is gone now, that they blew it, that they were faithless, that God said, okay, that's fine, I'm taking the kingdom and giving it to a people that are more deserving than you. Well, then you're abusing the scriptures and you're failing to compare scripture with scripture. David has to receive this throne. God is not a liar. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with what? With justice and righteousness. That's why no unbeliever can enter the millennial kingdom. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. (laughs) You know, zeal for my father's house will consume me. Jesus goes berserk in his zeal, starts flipping over tables and whipping them. And the disciples are like, ooh, okay. Because that's just a glimpse into what is about to happen in the second advent. Totally uh, unlike his normal meek nature in the first advent. So this is what we have to look forward to. Jeremiah 23. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. If you think you're going to be a pastor someday, this is a good chapter for you. When, when the good shepherd is pronouncing woe, pay attention. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the shepherds who are attending my people, you have scattered my flock, driven them away, have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. I mean, it's one thing if a sheep wanders off, if a sheep gets lost, that's what sheep do, sheep are stupid. But if you drove the sheep away, if you with force and severity dominated them and drove them away and abused them, then uh, the good shepherd's coming after you. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them and they will not be afraid any longer nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. You know, Israel was founded in 1948. They're still terrorized to this day. They're still under constant missile threat, constant bomb threat, constant knife attacks, everything. Not so when Jesus comes. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. 
There's that branch thing again. Where do we see branch? And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. See, it's, not, it's a divided kingdom when Isaiah is prophesying, when Jeremiah is prophesying. It's not going to be a divided kingdom at second advent. The new covenant will go into force. It goes into force with Judah, with Israel, with the unified nation of Israel. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. See, that's not the case yet. Israel has not accepted Jesus as their righteousness yet. Most of Israel today is there in unbelief, which is why they'll sign their treaty with Antichrist, because they're not there in Yahweh's righteousness. They're there pursuing their own righteousness. Not until second advent will they be there to pursue Jesus and his righteousness. All right. Well, the uh, Genesis narrative completely omits Melchizedek's father, mother, genealogy, and lifespan so as to craft a person to typify the eternal Son of God. This is the point when it says without father, without mother. That's not literally true, but it's literarily true. It's how it is written. It's how the narrative is crafted. The narrative completely omits Melchizedek's father, mother, genealogy, and lifespan. That was important in chapter 5. It was important in chapter 10. It's important in chapter 11. It's critical for Israel. It's irrelevant to Melchizedek. Melchizedek does not hold his priesthood on the basis of earthly requirements, on the basis of any earthly uh, genealogy or anything that he's earned or deserved. And so as to craft, to literally craft a person to typify the eternal Son of God, made like the Son of God, is literally impossible, but literarily beautiful. Made like the Son of God. How do you make a God? (laughs) Okay? God is the uncaused cause. He is the eternal I am. He is the unmade, the unborn, the un... I mean, He is. So something that is I am cannot come to be or be made or be fashioned. When Jesus said, I will be made like the Most High God. No, you won't. You can't make the eternal I am. But Melchizedek is made like the Most High God. Well, how is that? How could he be made like the Son of God? Well, you could be made like the Son of God either literally or literarily, and that's the case here. In the way that his biography is written, these details are crafted in such a way that he is the typification of the Son of God. And so while literally impossible, it is literarily beautiful. In fact, he becomes, Melchizedek becomes, the quintessential king-priest character. The quintessential king-priest character. Who else do you want to look at to typify this? You can't look at David, you can't look at Solomon, you can't look at any other king-priest. They weren't king-priests, they were just kings. You can't look, there are king-priests in antiquity, but they're all pagan, they're all evil. So do you want to have a quintessential king-priest character? Then you've got Melchizedek in Genesis 14. The quintessential king-priest character. What do I mean? You know what quintessential means? It's the pinnacle. It's the, it's the ultimate. It's the, you know, it's the, it's the, when you think 
king priest, you should be thinking Melchizedek first and foremost. When you think uh, traitor, you should think Benedict Arnold, right? He's the quintessential traitor. When you think uh, megalomaniac dictator, you should think Adolf Hitler, right? You should think we have quintessential. In fact, this is a literary device. I I told you I was going to share a website with you. Writerstore.com. I meant to preload this to make sure our internet was up. There it is. Gonna make it bigger. Make it too big, then I can't read it. Anyway, if you want a link to this, just shoot me an email, I'll send it to you. This is writerstore.com. Great characters, the best kept secret. And some of you are writers, I'm not a writer, but we got writers here in the room, and you'll you'll appreciate this if you've ever written fiction, nonfiction, anything. You want to write a great character? Here's how you write a great character. And if you want to ruin a great character, then go social justice and rewrite something that has used to be a great character, and then you just destroyed them by the rewrite, by the, the ruining. Have you ever wondered why characters like Sherlock Holmes, King Arthur, Achilles, Scrooge, Dorothy, and Superman, how do they go on forever? The real secret of their immortality lies in something you've probably never equated with the creation of a great character, a great story, the quintessential. But if you fathom the secrets of this remarkable quality, you can use it to make your characters truly charismatic and merchandisable and just about everything else in your story more fascinating. So this is, these are tips to help a young writer get going and, and do better than a lot of folks. According to the dictionary, the quintessential is the most perfect manifestation or embodiment of a quality or thing. It is the ultimate, good or bad, best or worst example. The world's fastest runner is the quintessential runner. The world's deadliest snake is the quintessential deadly snake. Hitler is the quintessential megalomaniac. Einstein is the essence of mathematical genius. He is symbolic of genius. You know, wanna, you want to insult somebody for doing something boneheaded, you say, good job, Einstein. You know, well, why is that? Because you're being sarcastic, and Einstein is the, is the quintessential genius. All right. Applied to story, it means making the story elements the best example of that element, right? And that's what Moses did when he wrote the story of Melchizedek. Now, it's it's not to say that Melchizedek wasn't literal. Melchizedek really happened. But when Moses wrote the Melchizedek story, he did so to create the quintessential king-priest, to do so without father, mother, genealogy, to, to write that story in such a way to present for us the quintessential king-priest. And so um, this is, in fact, what great stories are all about. Great stories, myths, and legends are dominated by quintessential elements. Zeus is the most powerful god. Helena Troy is the most beautiful woman. Achilles is the greatest warrior. King Arthur is the most chivalrous king. Camelot is the most fabulous kingdom. Excalibur is the most powerful sword. Samson is the strongest man. So you see on and on and on. That's the nature of the quintessential. Harry Potter. (laughs) All right. Sherlock Holmes. Dominant quality or trait of deductive reasoning. Anyway, there's a whole article there. And uh, Peter Sellers. (laughs) Anyway. I'll share that with you if you want it. Shoot me an email. I'll send you the link. But this is what we have here. Moses has crafted the quintessential king-priest character by the details he left out, by the way in which he wrote 
Genesis 14, so as to leave Melchizedek without father, without mother, without genealogy, to write him, to make him like the Son of God. To, to write him and make him like the greatest type of Jesus Christ imaginable as the king priest of righteousness. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for this study. And I pray, Father, that we would recognize the greatness. Your word commands us, observe how great this man was. And we are commanded to observe his greatness. And so, Father, we want to observe his greatness and we want to observe how it relates to our Savior in his priesthood so that we can live out our priesthood in that same greatness. Father, uh, it's an exciting study up ahead, so continue to bless our endeavors. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.